Father's Day, we're talking with Charles Clayton Daniels, Jr., CEO and founder of Fathers Uplift. Fathers Uplift is a Boston-based organization that empowers fathers to overcome barriers and become positively engaged in their children's lives. Charles, welcome to the Moving Upstream podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here today. Wanted to just start by hearing from you a little bit more about Fathers Uplift and what brought you to this work. Yeah, so I actually grew up in a household without my father. I'm raised primarily by my mother at the age of 10 years old. My father um, went from being in and out of my life to not being engaged in my life at all. Uh, When I became 25 years old, I found out why my father was not in my life. And come to find out, he had been married to his wife for several years, and my mother I was the outside woman. I was a result of a marital affair. Um, Essentially, I asked myself one day, what if my father had someone to provide him guidance to navigating um, what he was experiencing as a man um, Mm -hmm. who is the son of a pastor who has to keep this image, being close to perfect? What if he had someone to help him walk through that process? It would have been a, a tremendous difference, made a tremendous difference in my life as well as his. So the goal of Fathers Uplift was to um, give men um, that support they need to navigate those um, difficult issues that they may not be able to handle while they're alone, and for them to recognize how important they are to their children. So created Fathers Uplift um, solely to be um, that resource for men who are navigating difficult situations, um, that supportive force for them to actually be able to achieve their desired goals and stay engaged in their kids' lives. And that's pretty much what we're doing here in Boston, and we do it through several ways. We have a program called our Father's Homecoming Program, where we work in the prisons with a father three months prior to his release to put together a comprehensive mental health plan that takes him from prison to home and mentally prepares him to embrace his children once he's out the walls. We also have mental health therapy where we work individually with fathers, uh, mothers, and their children to address their unique issues. We know that in the state of Massachusetts, probably nationally, that um, a, a positive relationship or addressing relationship issues between a mother and a father um, could result in positive outcomes for the child, and the father wouldn't necessarily be uh, kept away from the child. So we navigate those issues as well. Um, another thing that we are currently doing is making sure that we are aiding and supporting our youth who are growing up in households without their fathers. The issues of fatherlessness um, is is huge in our community. Um, there's 99.8 uh, billion dollars that are spent on absent father households in the U.S., and that's in child support enforcement, housing, um, food programs, food and nutrition programs. Could you um, say a bit more about that, the importance of fathers, how that translates to some of these concerns you were referencing the for the children who grow up in homes without fathers? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, research shows that uh, when a child is growing up in a household without their father, poverty rates double. Um, Emotional and behavioral issues increase. High school dropout rates increase, as does crime and prison rates. Those things have been associated to the research, right? So without uh, a consistent father in the household or outside the household but involved and engaged, um, the outcomes for those children would be not good, essentially, mm-hmm. right? And I feel as if there are kids who've grown up in households without their fathers like me who managed to do well in their lives, but the struggles that those kids go through. I was a very lucky child. 
um, the struggles that the child goes through is is essentially a, a difficult process that we can alleviate if we put the father um, in the household. So when you think about how important that role is, it's essential to the growth of the child developmentally, um, emotionally, mm-hmm. um, as well as physically, right? So mm-hmm. there's a connection there that has to um, be acknowledged when we're doing um, work with families, and the father plays a huge role in that. So you mentioned before some of the barriers that that fathers face, and you said that you support fathers in overcoming barriers. Could you talk a little more about what some of those barriers are to fathers and and how they can overcome them? Absolutely. So I think there's barriers that we there's barriers that fathers face that organizations um, can help support, right? And I think there's also systemic barriers that's, that's going to take a larger effort systemically and politically to adjust. And, and I want to start with systemic barriers first, right? Mm-hmm. So um, incarceration and child support. Um, we know that um, incarceration is one of the barriers that prevent fathers from being engaged in their kids' lives. And um, and we have to dispel the notion that just because a father um, is absent or incarcerated, that that means that he that he doesn't care. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. Men and the men that we work with who are behind bars care about their children. They just experienced trauma, um, some other issues that prevented them from being able to um, stay attuned to their child's needs because they couldn't stay attuned to their own needs. So there's one notion that I wanted to dispel. And the reason why I said that incarceration is a barrier because, of course, you can't see your child if you're behind bars. And if we add child support to it, um, in the state of Massachusetts, if you are on child support before you enter the jail, if you don't call the Department of Revenue and say, hey, um, I'm, on, I'm, I'm in jail and I can't pay these fees, your arrearages will continue to increase. But the question is, how many men are in a position when they get ready to be incarcerated to know that they need to call the Department right. of Revenue and say, hey, my payments need to be stopped? Um, and they don't. So we see that being a huge, huge systemic barrier that can be changed um, through policy implementation. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we know that men are going in, of course, we can say, hey, you know, um, tell them to call the Department of Revenue. Or jails can say, hey, call the Department of Revenue. Let them know that you're here. Or we can call them for you. Let them know that you're here. Mm-hmm. But that's not happening. I think we need to do better politically with policy to think about this strategically a little bit more. Um, another barrier that we're seeing is housing. Housing is real big. Um, in the state of Massachusetts, there are no shelters, well, particularly in the city of Boston, there are no shelters uh, primarily for fathers who have um, custody of, of their children and also for fathers who, are on the, who, who would like to get custody of their kids and their kids are in DCF custody. Uh, we have a lot of shelters for women and children, but we don't have any uh, for fathers and children. And mm-hmm. housing is a huge barrier. We've, we've seen men lose custody of their kids because they don't have a place to take them or they don't have housing. Right, and in the state of Massachusetts, that is room for the DCF to take away your kids. So that's a barrier, right? Housing. Um, we know the cost of living here is extremely high, and gentrification is taking place, right? So, we, you know, um, having guys, if you have a criminal record, and, or your child support papers are high, and your license has been revoked, how can you get a job when many of the jobs that pay um, minimum wage, you have to have the driver's license, right? So um, all of these barriers are interconnected. One thing that we find in our community with the fathers that we work with, if you do have a criminal record, the job that you do get can only afford you um, a little means to be able to take care of yourself a little, 
Mm-hmm. Um, yet alone be able to take care of another child. So um, unless you want to turn back to some of the old things that you were doing, and many of our guys have had past in criminal histories in the past where they had to resort to other means of providing for themselves because they couldn't get to provide for themselves and others through the way the society wanted them to provide for themselves. If you um, have a criminal record and you're applying for shelter or housing in the state of Massachusetts, it slows down that process. Automatically you would be placed on the waiting list but if they find out that you have a criminal record, which you have to disclose on the Boston housing application, mm-hmm. um, it just slows down the process substantially for you. Wow. Well, those are those are not insignificant. And, and what can you do to address those barriers? Is that something that you're involved with, the, some of the systemic barriers? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's been a lot of conversation about how can we how can we create a shelter uh, for fathers and their families in the city of Boston, which we um, are currently in conversation right now? Um, Boston List has definitely given, given us funding to create a feasibility to be able to think about um, the ways in which we want to build this shelter, which is going to be located in Dorchester. And the goal is to make sure that fathers who do have custody of their kids and fathers who are interested in gaining custody of their kids have some way that they can bring their kids, stay, and get and get the services that we provide here um, and once in a one-stop shop. Currently what we provide is mental health therapy, uh, family therapy, group therapy, as well as advocacy support. Um, guys coming out of jail have need some support navigating courts, um, you know, getting shared time with their kids, establishing visitation orders. You know, when you've been away for some time, um, many of the guys say, hey, I don't have any rights, but you do have rights. A lot of guys don't know what their rights are. So um, that's a combination of both, right, informing but at the same time advocating for um, the city and for the state to begin thinking about fathers as a role that matters, whether that's providing housing for them, uh, whether, that's, whether that is thinking about the policy on how we could um, make um, resources and opportunities more um, affordable, more accessible to men who are just getting out of jail or men who have passed but don't necessarily have the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been, a, there's been a policy that Governor Baker has definitely been working on to think about uh, how can we make sure that someone's past is not used against them. Mm-hmm. So whether you're looking at the check the box initiative where guys don't have to disclose what type of issues or you know, um, being able to seal, seal your criminal record, those are some things that the state has definitely been thinking about. Um, they're having a conversation, but there is more that we, can be, we could do collectively. And so that's part of the advocacy work that you are engaged in and also encouraging fathers to participate in? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. A question um, sort of circling back to some of the earlier comments you made. You you talk about a number of um, men growing up without fathers in the home. When it comes time for them to be fathers, is that uh, more difficult for them if they haven't had that model in the home? Yeah, you know what what we see here i think we i think society in general um does a great job with teaching men how to parent children or parent other people but one thing that we forget is that we can't expect a man or anyone to parent a child if they don't know how to parent themselves mm-hmm. and here we focus on emotional intelligence right uh my philosophy is that if we can teach a man how to parent himself know how to identify communicate his emotions be able to handle those emotions and, and deal with them in a healthy manner, he would be able to do the same thing for his child. 
and that philosophy has worked. I think we kind of we got to step back a little bit. I think we we're thinking about how can we care for other people, how can we support another child, and how can we spend time with them when we are unable to do that ourselves. And many of the men that we've worked with in the past have come from places in their lives where mentally they're not in that position to be able to say, hey, you know, um, I, they, they, now the interest is there. I love my child. I want to be a better parent, and I want to be there for them. But uh, there's some trauma that I've experienced. You know, I didn't have my father with me. There's some unforgiveness I've experienced. And we have to take time to kind of get through those issues and navigate them accordingly. I, I, I would say that out of all the fathers that we've worked with at the clinic, uh, the interest is always there. The love is always there, right? Uh, the need and the want to actually want to be there and want to be better than they were before or better than what their fathers were to them is there. Mm-hmm. One thing that is missing is, okay, how can I reconcile these difficult emotions that I'm experiencing? Mm-hmm. That's the thing that's missing. How can I make sense of what I've been through and not allow it to define me or or be used against me when I'm in a vulnerable position? And we and, and we know that men don't deal with deal well with emotions, right? Emotions is like a touchy subject for many men, and we want to make sure that it doesn't be that it doesn't become a touchy or a fearful subject, but they get used to it and are able to deal with it. And we've seen positive outcomes when we're able to when men are able to have those conversations. Well, that's that is interesting and and resonates with a lot of what we hear in our making connections work, where we talk about moving from sort of a one size fits all approach to mental health and well being to one that considers things like gender and past experiences and culture. And so, it sounds like you're saying that a lot of the um, men you work with, and I think we hear this about men in society generally, have been socialized in a way that doesn't encourage them to to express and share with others their emotions. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's real big. You know, uh, it's it's difficult for guys to to cry when they come in here for the first time, right, or show mm-hmm. any type of emotion. I mean, the culture, the culture that you have to navigate as a man, and even as a man of color in the community, right, uh, isn't one that doesn't seem to be one that's open to, um, you expressing your full range of emotions, showing what you saying, what you really feel, showing what's really going on with you, right? Mm-hmm. We've been conditioned to to navigate in this 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 mentality of thinking that we have to be strong, we have to be tough, and that's not necessarily the case. So it's it's a relearning process that has to take place. Another thing we talk about when we're exploring mental health and well-being is the importance of relationship and connections. And Mm -hmm. obviously this is at the core of what you're doing. And I'm wondering what you see in terms of relationships and well-being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think with men and relationships, relationships are essential. Uh, One thing that we see with men, though, trust is even more important. You know, without trust, there's no relationship. Uh, we we know that men um, we work with can sense whether you're authentic or you're real or not, or that they can let down their guard with you um, when they jump in. I mean, when they come into the room. Hmm. And, and and one thing that I encourage practitioners to think about, uh, practitioners to really think about, say, hey, you know, if if your if your work environment could speak, what would it say? You know, and I think that's a great question to think about. You know, I think we our environments and our office spaces, they talk before we even open our mouths as a practitioner or a provider or an advocate. You know, and if the language does if the language of your workspace doesn't align with your passion and your language, then there's gonna be a conflict and I think it and it won't help um help this relationship or foster the relationship or the support that the dad needs. So I definitely encourage 
practitioners and, and, and people who are doing work and thinking about how can we help men to think about their environments and to look at their environments as people that speak even when we they can't speak verbally but they speak based on what the messages that they send to dads or men who are walking in their office spaces. So we're we're very intentional from the office space to the to the things that clinicians say pictures that we have on the wall, books that we have on the table. We're very intentional. You just mentioned a little bit about it, the pictures, the books. What else expresses? The, what other kind of sort yeah. of non-spoken language do people pick up on in an uh, environment? I think color is big. I think lighting hmm. of the space is real big. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, like I said, the pictures, um, the staff, what people are wearing. You know, uh, I, I, I just, I just, I think it says much when it when it comes together. It says a lot, you know. Um, but pictures in the books, I would say that's one of the key things. Pictures in the books, right? Uh, pictures, books combined with those things that I just listed. Those are very important. So say, say more about that. What images would you want to have? Well, you know, I think it depends on the community that you're in. I, I think I think men need to see people that look like them, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I think if we're in hospital settings or, um, or community service agencies and we see that the population is primarily women, I'm pretty sure there's some men there, some men need to see them, themselves on the walls or, or in the literature that's being um, given to them, right? I, I think we have to kind of mix it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I've, I've walked in certain hospitals and seen nothing but women on the wall, women and children on the wall, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was becoming a father myself, you know, uh, and had to go with my wife to the OBGYN. You know, um, I I want to see me. I want to know that I matter. I want to know that that the organization is even thinking about me, right? right so, yeah. those are definitely something that I. That's what I would encourage. So we, so people that come in here, they see mothers in the office, but they also see fathers. Mm-hmm. You know, they see people that look like them. Things that people don't necessarily think about, unless you point that out. That's really interesting. You know where I learned that from, Jill? Where? I went to um, this organization in St. Louis, and it was like a uh, antique shop. And uh, this is where uh, families could go in and get items for free or, or items for free or pay for it uh-huh. uh, with a low amount of money. And one thing that the people who worked there did, they always wrapped the, wrapped the items up in plastic. And I was like, okay, what's the difference between, you know, just giving it to them and then wrapping it up in plastic? But that plastic adds value. And I was like, okay, how can I apply this at my job or my agency? Well, you know, we got to make sure that people feel valuable when they walk in here, when they walk in the door, especially with men, you know, handshake, smile, how you doing? Yeah. What's your name? You know, different things like that matter. Mm-hmm. Very interesting and, and exciting and important work. I think there's more and more recognition of the importance of this. And I'm wondering if what what's sort of at the top of your priority list? What What can we or what are you working on to empower fathers, what are you most excited about in your work right now? Oh man, I'm I'm very much excited about taking this um, field of looking at mental health, looking at um, parenting as it relates to being a father as a mental health concern, mm-hmm. as opposed to just a parenting issue. Right? I don't think I think father absence is mainly a mental health concern, and we need to look at it that way. I think men are overwhelmed by the obligations, the images that they think they have to live up to and don't know that they can be good enough and they don't have to have a lot of money to be a great father or or a house with a white picket fence or a nice car. The time is what matters. And I think 
creating this field and thinking about having a clinic that's exclusively geared towards supporting men and being better fathers and just accepting them and who they are. I think that's something that we as a country need more of. I think there's many men across the country that are struggling with finding out who they are, who they want to be as a dad mm-hmm. um, that, that's different from what society tells them they need to be. And I think mm-hmm. I'm very much excited about spreading that message. And I, and I think you all are helping us do a great job at it. I think the language and the missions are, are, in, one, are in alignment with one another. And I just think this this should be like a, a effort that just takes over the country because it's needed. I think men want to be better fathers, and they are better fathers. They just can't see what they're doing matters. I think that's uh, that could be a uh, thing, especially when so many people are telling you what you need to be and not necessarily let, um, acknowledging what you are doing. I, I think that is a struggle. And I'm very excited about how we're changing the face of mental health um, and fatherhood combined. Say a little more about the way men are seen or fathers are seen in the way they versus the way they actually are. Yeah. So I have a one thing that I've been doing since I've been doing this work. I, I've always I've always asked the men to write down a list of things um, that makes them valuable. Mm-hmm. Jill, every list that I've gotten ever since ever since I've done that activity. Everything that a father has wrote about himself that makes him valuable um, has something to do with the material things that he had possessed, car, house, bank account, job, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, those things were his value. And then then I had to shift the exercise and say, hey, you know, I want you to think about things that you can't physically possess, Mm -hmm. right? And to get down to the meaning of that. And then when I do that, uh, many men struggle with that. So when you think about what men think they should do or what roles they think they should play, much of it is being a provider, job, um, house, taking care of everybody else, right? Um, but when you ask them who they are or, or what makes them them, it's a, it's a struggle. I, I want to I know what you do. What do you, what do you like to do? What do you enjoy um, what what are you passionate about? What makes you you? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so detaching that material piece from their identity, that's another thing. Because many guys measure their worth based on the material things they possess instead of how they're showing up for their kids Absolutely. and family. They don't even see that as valuable sometimes when they first come in these doors. This is this has been great, and I think just a perfect tribute to Father's Day. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I yeah. well love to have you because this is this is such great work you're doing, and and I think um, and hope that people continue to pay more attention to this and the role of fathers and the potential for fathers. Thank you, Charles. It's been great to talk to you. All right, thank you, Joe. 